0: Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Calves, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. If you were to leave today out those doors, And I don't know, get in your car or get on a train or something and head off to Sydney to catch an international flight and land in Rome today. And happen to, while you were there, find yourself heading towards the Palatine Museum. Uh, You would find yourself there surrounded by the grandeur of ancient statues and artifacts of Christian history. But amidst all of these shrines of human achievement, uh, there in that Palatine Museum, you'll also find an unfrequented corner that is occupied by a rather unremarkable, roughly etched slab of marble. This piece of marble once was a part of the wall to the imperial palace that stood atop one of the seven hills of, of ancient Rome, uh, a palace that housed the emperors of Rome, who, as you may recall, for a time were considered divine themselves. This etching preserved on the marble today, it's, it's a rather mundane piece of ancient graffiti. Unearthed by archeologists in the 19th century, this graffiti depicts a caricature of a person standing next to a crucified figure that has the head of a donkey. Below the figure is a messy Greek carving that reads, "Alexamenos worships his God. Scholars believe that this ancient graffiti is the earliest known pictorial representation of the crucifixion of Jesus. The high point of the Christian story, what it is we are here now memorialising on this Easter holiday. And in a city like Rome, which is today just again filled with monuments to a triumphant Christendom of 2,000 years, I don't know about you, but I find there to be something quite moving, strangely moving, about the fact that the very first visual testimony that we have to the Christian religion is this piece of graffiti. Hardly a tribute of triumph. What this represents is a monument of mockery. I think this graffiti reveals that some Christians truly do stand the test of time. Alexamenos worships his God, a god who was killed on a cross. It just sounds absurd, right? I mean, you're trying to tell me David, today, here and now, that I should be worshipping a God who got crucified. Why did Jesus even have to die? And if he's going to die, why did he have to die by crucifixion? Couldn't he have just forgiven us and avoided the whole show? Again, today is Easter Sunday. It's Resurrection Sunday. But for there to be a resurrection, there needs to be a death. And that, in the Christian tradition, took place on Good Friday, just past the friday preceding the sunday these are the two pivotal days that make up the easter story good friday and resurrection sunday and with them in mind what i want to do this afternoon is just consider with you for a moment this question why did jesus die on a cross there are many ways we could answer this question you know because he had a friend named judas who betrayed him uh, because there were some jewish teachers who considered him a false heretic and so they tried him Because the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, couldn't find any guilt in him and so wiped his hands clean of him. Because the Roman soldiers themselves crucified him and they were very good at their craft. All of these are good and correct answers, but I think they only make up part of the answer to this question. I'm not going to give or pretend to give a full answer to this question today, but what I want to do is just add another dimension by looking at specifically why Jesus died on a cross and what that signals to you and I today. By way I've outlined, we have three different aspects I want to explore. Number one, identification. Number two, subversion. And three, fulfillment. I get it, These sound a little abstract. You're like, where's he going? <laughs> I hope as we walk through this, it'll sound or make clear what it is these are all on about so with that let's just get right in number one identification Uh, during our regular Sunday services here if you've been coming along we're going through the book of Acts we just started a couple of weeks ago Uh, in Acts we read about this bloke named Paul who was a leader and he traveled around the Mediterranean starting churches all over the place you know we just take churches for granted today as though they're in every city and town we come across but there was a time when they weren't and they actually had to get started That's what Paul and a few other people were doing at that time. Somewhere around 49 to 51 AD, Paul came to this city of Corinth. Corinth was a major Greek city that was strategically located between Italy and Asia. It was like the bridge of commerce between the East and the West. It was kind of like a modern day New York or Los Angeles or Sydney in that it wasn't the capital of the empire, But nonetheless, it was a very wealthy, very influential, very progressive, hip, urban, cultural kind of place. So Paul comes to town and he boldly plants a church. And then he spent some time and then moved on. A couple of years later, about three or four years later, there's a bit of debate. He got word of some issues back in the Corinthian church. And because he was unable to return to visit and address them, what he did was write a series of letters to correct some of these issues. And that's where we land with this text that Nick read out for us earlier today. Paul is writing, he's addressing one particular issue in our little text here today about the nature and authority of really what is the central Christian message concerning the death of Jesus on a Roman cross. Evidently, there were some Christians there at the uh, Corinthian church who were feeling the pressures of the city life. There was something of an awkwardness, right, in believing this idea of a God who has, you know, become a man that then died and came back to life and now we should be worshipping him. That can be a hard message to sell in a liberal, progressive kind of city like Corinth. It can be a very hard message to sell in a progressive city like Newcastle, New South Wales, Australia. But here's the thing. Christians are not salesmen. If we're anything, we're postmen. You know, we don't write the mail, we just deliver it. Postmen, postwomen. And that's more or less Paul's response here as he gets going. Look here at verse 18. The word, the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. In other words, Paul just straight up owns this awkwardness there in Corinth. But look at how Paul qualifies this in verse 22. Verse 22. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. You see what Paul is saying? He's confessing, yes, the message of Jesus' death on a cross seems foolish. I get that. But he's not saying that it is actually in and of itself foolish. What he's saying is that it's foolish from the perspective of certain cultural values and expectations. In this case, the uh, values and expectations of the predominant cultures within first century Corinth, namely the Judaism and the Gentile or non-Jewish Greek culture of that time and place. Now, Paul was uniquely positioned to speak into these two dominant cultural systems of basically the Jews and the Greeks. You see, on the one hand, he was a highly educated Jew, well-versed in Jewish texts and traditions. But on the other, Paul was a citizen of Rome, which again was just adopted the the Greek culture and religions of its day. So he was also well acquainted with Greek and Roman culture as well. But even more than these two, Paul was a Christian. Ever since his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, which you can read about again in that book of Acts, we'll get there in, I don't know, a year, <laughs> Paul was a different man. On that Damascus road, he experienced a transformation that changed his, his life. It changed the way he viewed himself his Jewish ethnicity, and his Roman citizenry. Now, it's not that encountering Jesus somehow denied who Paul was. Coming to Jesus doesn't make you or I reject our cultural backgrounds or our nationalities because Jesus Christ is not some alternate option to these aspects in our lives today. For a Christian, Jesus does not replace who we are. He transforms who we are by holding all of the varied aspects of what makes you and I unique as human people together, like flour to a baked cake. Jesus is the fundamental ingredient to the life of a Christian that reshapes and reforms and raises us up from the inside to the fullness of who we were always meant to be. So it's from this perspective now as a Christian Jewish Roman (laughs) that Paul writes this letter, addressing first the Jews. Look at what he says here in verse 22. Jews demand signs, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. The word here for stumbling block is the Greek scandalon, which means to cause an offence. It's from, you know, where we get the English word scandal. So the question now becomes, what is it about this message of the cross, of Christ crucified, that is so scandalous to the Jews? To answer this, you and I need to try and think like a first century Jew. For hundreds of years, the ancient kingdom of Israel had been divided and its people scattered and subjugated by foreign nations. But through it all, the Jews had hope that God would make good on his promises, promises that were made to the nation through their prophets and their patriarchs of old. Time and again, this hope was kindled throughout the centuries as God demonstrated his power and presence through many signs and wonders, through the raising up of leaders to relieve the Jews and remind them that they were his people and he was their God. And some of us here may be familiar with some of those stories, right? We have Moses who led the exodus from Egypt. We have Elijah and Elisha who stood up to the prophets of Baal. Well, that little gap of history between the Old and the New Testaments where Matthias and his sons led that guerrilla campaign against the Seleucid Empire in the Maccabean revolt. Time and again, God had stepped in with powerful signs and wonders, demonstrating his commitment to his people. And within the Jewish texts and traditions, there was a promise that one day God would raise up a final leader from amongst the nation, an anointed one, the Hebrew Messiah who would restore the kingdom of Israel to its former glory and redeem the people, the Jews, once and for all. When we translate this Hebrew word Messiah into Greek, we get the word Christ. So if you're a Jew living in the first century at the time Paul wrote this letter, finding yourself oppressed under the iron fist of the mighty Roman empire, If you heard the Christ has come, or some preacher boy going around the Mediterranean declaring this message, you would be looking out your door to that Roman soldier on the corner of the street thinking, boy, you had better tuck and run that red cape of yours. King Saul killed his thousands, King David his tens of thousands, how much more will the Christ? To be a Christ was to be a conqueror. The Jews were a very matter-of-fact people. They wanted outcomes. They didn't want a riddle or a philosophy. They wanted action, and they wanted it now, a divine display of power. And Christ was that signal to the world of conquering victory, a kingship that would annihilate all and establish its throne forever. Christ crucified, therefore, No, (laughs) Mm -mm. that is not a king, that is not a conqueror, that is not a Christ. Because it's not a victory, it's a herald of defeat, right? To make matters worse, if you knew your Torah, the Jewish religious text... You would know that according to Jewish law, that to hang by dying from a tree was to be accursed by God. The Christ was the anointed of God, not the accursed of God. So this message of the cross is nothing short of a scandal to the Jew. So what about the Greeks? Verse 22 again, Paul says, Jews demand signs, Greeks or Gentiles, non-Jews, they seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly, to the Gentiles. So the Jews valued powerful signs and expected a conquering Christ. The Greeks valued wisdom, literally Sophia, uh, which is related to the English word philosophy or philosophia, the love of wisdom. In the history of Western culture, every chapter begins with the Greeks logic, art, science, politics, you name it, you can pretty much trace it back to one ancient Greek thinker or another. All Greeks were zealous for every kind of learning, wrote Herodotus. And it's from this zealousness that we find a radical departure from the Jewish culture in the Greek search for wisdom. You see, for the Jews, philosophy was more or less a part of their religious tradition, which was top-down. It was a revelational kind of religious culture. You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But for Greeks, with, without any top-down kind of religious revelation, they came at the question of wisdom from the bottom up, not with the fear of the Lord, but with their fascination with the natural world. And the more and the more that the Greeks grew in their wisdom of the natural world, the more they began to see their old Olympian kind of, you know, 1000 BC Greek dark ages, those old Homeretic Olympian gods of Zeus and Poseidon and Apollo as outdated moot mythology. For the Greeks, the mythological school was out. In a liberal, progressive, hip, urban, cultural city like Corinth, the end of all things was no longer found in the religious piety or pantheon of the gods, but in the eloquence of speech and the human pursuit of wisdom. Now, this is why for the Greeks, absent any you know, religious expectation of a coming Messiah or Christ, their problem with the message of the cross, of Christ crucified, had less to do with the Christ aspect and more to do with the crucified aspect. You see, in the first century, the Romans had devised a number of very creative ways to kill criminals. But among them all, crucifixion was considered the most barbaric. Not only was it excruciatingly painful, that's where the English word derives from, by the way, excrucis out of the cross from the Latin, but it also had a profound cultural shock impact on people. In the opinion of Roman intellectuals, crucifixion was a punishment like no other. To be hung naked, spread-eagled and exposed, helpless to the elements and pecking birds, longing agony, wrote Seneca, was to be a spectacle of shame. Crucifixion was irredeemably degrading. So much so that even Roman citizens were protected from it by law. The very word cross, wrote statesman Cicero, should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes and his ears. So if Christ crucified is oxymoronic for the Jews, it was simply moronic for the Greeks. Literally a kind of madness. Here, look everyone. Look at Alexa Menos. look at him worship his God. This is Paul's cultural analysis at Corinth. He is identifying certain cultural values and expectations and desires that shape and inform and reform and raise up how the people respond to the message of Christ, to the message of Christ crucified. For the Jews, demanding powerful signs, they come at the cross with all of their religious values and expectations and they find themselves repelled because to them the cross looks like weakness. For the Greeks, seeking wisdom, they come at the cross with all of their values and standards, and they find themselves repelled by the cross because to them it looks like folly. But whether Jew or Greek, in both cases, what we have here are people coming towards this cross, holding on to everything that they hold dear, their deepest values, their great expectations, their heart cries, their longings, their sense of belonging. And they take one look at Christ crucified, and because they cannot see how it affirms whatever it is that they're holding on to, or how it supports them, or how it approves what it is they're looking for, or how it endorses their particular ideas, they just walk away. Off in another direction in search of a place and a space where they might find validation. Their values were more important to them than God. That's why they walked away. Now, the Bible has a name for anything that we consider more important than God it's called an idol. To modern ears, the word idol conjures up pictures of primitive people bowing down before statues, or perhaps Simon Cowell's latest pop star. (laughs) But you see what Paul is doing here. His point isn't so much about what the value is, but about how it affects people on the inside about our heart's affection, our mind's attention towards whatever it is we value, how they shape us, how they form us, how they inform us and reform us to think, speak and do certain things. And these idols can be often very much are good things. So identification, this is the first aspect. Paul identifies our cultural idols, the dominant values in this case of the Jews and the Gentile peoples. So the question now comes, for you and I, what are our values? And how does Easter affect our values? It can be hard sometimes to identify what we value, so here's some prompting questions to think about as we go through this. What do you think about the most? How do you spend your time? Who do you want others to think you are? Where do you find your approval? Why do you fear what you fear the most? Can you even identify what you fear? And if you can't, why? What are those areas in your life that you feel most guilty about that give you an anxious lump in your throat? What are those things or who are those people that if you lost them, you would be lost? Identification. Let's now look at this second aspect of subversion. As we continue to look here at 1 Corinthians, we see that this Jewish and Gentile repulsion to the message of the cross, it's not universal. Not every Jew or every Greek was repelled by Christ crucified. Check this out again, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now jump to verse 24:25. To those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see what Paul is saying here. There is this whole other group of people here of which Paul is one, who are being saved and this group is comprised of both Jews and Greeks. For these people, Christ crucified is not weakness, it's the exact opposite, it's the power of God. For these people, Christ crucified is not foolishness, it's the exact opposite, it is the wisdom of God. In other words, for these people who value and expect and desire power and wisdom... Paul is saying these are actually available at the cross because, again, the message of the cross, Christianity, is not in the business of erasing who you are and what it is that you value, your desires. It's it's actually in the business of fulfilling them. But here's the key. (laughs) This is the key. That fulfillment of whatever it is that we hold dear, whatever it is we most cherish, of whatever it is we're longing for, pining for, praying for, waiting for, That only comes with a willingness to countenance that we may not yet completely understand what that thing is that we hold dear. For the Jews, they demanded power. The Greeks, they were seeking wisdom. If the Jews were wanting demonstrations of power and the Greeks are seeking wisdom, and if Paul is saying here that they're available at the cross, then this tells us, That the message of Christ crucified, it's not so much about what we value, but how we value things. This again seems to be Paul's emphasis back in verse 22. Not the what, but the how. The Jews demand signs. The Greeks seek wisdom. Again, just as Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus didn't deny who he was, his Jewish ethnicity, his Roman citizenry, so an encounter with the cross isn't in the business of denying what we hold most dear in life family, spouse, children, friends, romantic relationships, work, competency, skill, success, intelligence, appearance, brains, beauty, social status, political progress, pleasure, leisure, material treasure. The message of the cross isn't in the business of denying these things, of selling you something that you can add to your wish list for life. Because the message of cross, the cross is not an addition to your life. It is a transformation of your life. So let me be real clear here. I'm not a motivational speaker, believe you me. If you've heard me before, you know that. <laughs> I'm not here today to try and sell you some false promise of your best life now. That is not Christianity. That is not what Paul's talking about here. The message of the cross does not bring wish fulfillment. It brings subversive fulfillment. Those who are repelled by the message of Christ crucified are so because when they are confronted by the cross with Jesus, they don't see how this whole drama could possibly fulfill what it is they most desire. So they turn and they walk away. But those who are compelled by the message of Christ crucified are so because when they come to the cross and they are confronted by Jesus, they find themselves in awe of who he is and what this message of the cross communicates to them and their hands become loose. The the tension in their forearms is released as they just let go of whatever it is they're holding on to and put their arms out to Jesus. And this is... The way, by the way, (laughs) that, that passing through the cross and into the arms of Jesus, those who are compelled by the message of the cross end up finding what it was they were always looking for. It's just in a way they didn't necessarily expect, in a way that sees their values reshaped and reformed and raised up in the perfect completion and fullness of what they were always meant to be like in Christ. And again, the fact that those who are repelled by the cross consist of Jews and Greeks and those who are compelled by the cross consist of Jews and Greeks tells us that the message of the cross is not for any one culture or value system or set of desires or ideals. For all of the differences in our world today that make up all of the cultural warring and the cancel cultural squabbling today from colour, caste, creed, code, denominational catechism, The message of the cross transcends them all because it's not ultimately about what's going on between us (laughs) it's a vertical issue about what's going on between us and god the message of the cross is not a cultural message it's a spiritual message the easter holidays are not a cultural observance this is a timeless reminder of the hope that we have in jesus We see this now in verses 19 and 20, these little obscure verses here. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Here it gets super interesting. Paul is quoting an old Jewish prophet named Isaiah, and in doing so, he's starting to make a counter-argument against the Jews and the Greeks who are repelled by the message of the cross. We see this in at least two ways. First, by quoting this revered Jewish prophet, Paul is turning the Jewish demand for power back on to the Jews by showing them from their own religious text That the crucifixion of Jesus was not some historical accident or brutal political display. Paul is saying that this message of the cross has been the plan of the Messiah all along. And of all people, the Jews should have known this. Isaiah is their prophet, after all. And second, by referencing this particular text from Isaiah, Paul is also turning the Gentiles' search for wisdom back onto the Greeks. You see, this citation from Isaiah belongs to a grand series of texts uh, where the prophet is repeatedly warning Israel against trying to outsmart God as though God were something we could reduce to the confines of limited human reason. This is precisely what the Greeks were doing in their bottom-up search for wisdom, in their philosophies, in their sophistries, and their searching always and yet never finding the elusive one, 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 that we have represented in, you know, Neo in the matrix, that holds all of nature together. The Jews already had access to wisdom in their scriptures, which is why they were looking for signs in nature to locate their beliefs. The Greeks sort of had the opposite problem in that they had all of these signs in nature, but they had no wisdom to make sense of it all. The first Greek philosopher was named Thales. He suggested water holds everything together. After him came Heraclitus, who suggested fire. And air. Plato, the good, Aristotle, the unmoved mover, all tried, all tested, all testimonies to endless speculations and contradictions. So much so that by the close of the Athenian Academy in Greece by uh, 529 AD, I think, under Emperor Justinian, Greek philosophy had almost come full circle back to its pagan mythology in this kind of wholesale collapse of mysticism. It's like they had all of the questions and no answers and ended up circling right back to where they began it's really interesting when you look at history so whether you're Jew or Gentile Paul is channeling the same message to you here God is God and by definition he is all powerful he is all knowing and that means that the Jews are not in a position to make demands of power against him and the Greeks shouldn't expect that they can find him by their own mental faculties are we any different today? I'm involved in a ministry where we like to answer people's questions and the way that questions are asked, and and I'm putting myself in this category, I ask a lot of questions, (laughs) would suggest itself that we are no different. We live in a very privileged part of the world here in Australia, and with all of our choices and different options for belief around us, it can be really hard, if not sometimes impossible, to try and identify any single cultural vision of the good life, like perhaps the Jews and the Greeks did back in the first century. But if, like Paul, we we look beyond the differences of what we value to how we value things, I think we are find we're not so different from the Corinthians. Aussie philosopher Christopher Watkin of Monash University has suggested, in the absence of any kind of clear cultural value today, that there are at least two meta-values or value of values that shape how we value things today. These two are freedom and efficiency. Freedom is the idea that regardless of what you and I value, we all value the freedom to choose our own values. The freedom to create our own reality, our own identity, our own worth, our own idea of the good life, whatever that may be. So freedom then is this idea of having no constraints on what we choose to value. Ultimately, what matters the most is not what I choose to value or what you choose to value, but that we are free to choose to value however we want to value, whatever we value. (laughs) But the irony in all of this is that that kind of unbridled freedom turns out to imprison us because now no one is ever free not to choose. Everything today, even the things that were once considered sacred, are up for choice. Belief in God is a choice. Fidelity in marriage, a choice. Unborn life in the womb, a choice. My gender, a choice. Choice, choice, choice. And today we find ourselves haunted forever with the wonder have I made the right choice? And who will tell me if I have? I mean, if no one is in this position or right to, to judge me or give or, or question or say anything about what it is that I choose to do in life, then by the same token, who is in a position to affirm whatever I choose? Because even that would be a kind of judgment. But we all desperately desire affirmation, don't we? To be accepted, to be loved, to belong, to be affirmed. So that's freedom, and it ends up enslaving us to a demand and a search for affirmation in all sorts of places and spaces. And oftentimes, those places and spaces can really hurt us, can be addictive, and can lead to our uh, own increased sense of shame and perhaps even death. Efficiency, on the other hand, is this idea that we live in a market-driven society. Where freedom makes much of the human liberty of choice, efficiency sets the ground rules in that today everything is a kind of negotiation, a commodity to be bought and sold. Love, security, identity, it's all a contract, a business deal struck for personal gain, perhaps because we're trying to affirm ourselves given our freedom. (laughs) Efficiency is all about searching for the most efficient means in any given situation. But what ends up happening here is that the search for ever better means now become the end in themselves. Now efficiency is the good rather than a means to some other good. And today this has created more or less a culture of competition and the need to always outperform one another. From a young age, we compete in schools, studies, sporting teams. We get boyfriends, girlfriends. We get degrees, accolades, and jobs, all at the expense of one another. Then we start competing in finding a spouse and then keeping or losing that spouse. We start competing in the housing market, the stock market, the social media market for attention. And then we start having babies, and what do we do then? We just trade them off one against another and start the whole cycle all over again. So now we find ourselves wondering, have I got the optimal spouse? Is this the most optimal church, finely tuned to my particular idiosyncrasies? We even optimize our holidays as we try to make the most efficient use of our time. <laughs> as Netflix CEO Reed Hastin candidly admitted, the greatest competitor to Netflix is not a rival platform, it's sleep. In other words, in the name of efficiency, let's burn people out. We may be modern compared to the Corinthians. What we value may have changed. But we're just the same in terms of how we value these things, aren't we? Again, this is all about what's going on on the inside. It's not about the thing per se. It's about how that thing affects us, how we make these things into ultimate things, how we make idols out of what we value and desire in life. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain, it still remains within the sound of silence. In restless dreams I walked alone, narrow streets of cobblestone, neath the halo of a street lamp, I turned my collar to the cold and the damp. When my eyes were stabbed by the flash of a neon light that split the night and touched the sound of Silence. And the people bowed and prayed to the neon god they made. And the sign flashed out its warning in the words that it was forming. And the sign said, the words of the prophets are written on the subway walls in tenant halls and whispered in the sounds of silence. The loneliest moment in life is when you climb to the peak of what you thought would bring you fulfillment only to find that you are still empty that thing, that person that you thought would give you that sense of identity or worth or value. You get there and it may be around for a little bit but sooner or later it's gone. Even the best thing, like my wife and I are praying for our children to come from her womb for a couple of years. Before you know it, you're back complaining about something else. The message of the cross not only identifies our idols, it subverts our self-sufficiency. We are not able to fill ourselves up. We cannot save ourselves. Try as we may, we cannot satisfy the deepest desires of our heart. I mean, think about it. If the Jews had their way and salvation was found in the human demand of power, what kind of a salvation would that be? It would be a salvation that is closed off to the, to the weak, at the to the closed off to the strong at the expense of the weak, not to mention the Greeks. If the Greeks had their way and salvation was found in the confines of their particular pursuit of human wisdom, well, again, you'll end up with a salvation that is closed off to a small band of intellectual elites at the expense of the rest of us, not to mention the Jews. But Christ crucified, what kind of a salvation does that offer? Who's going to claim that one for themselves, right? That's the point that Paul's making here. This is a salvation that is open to everyone. This is about something you do not achieve. God achieves it on your behalf. You know why I'm a Christian? It's because at the heart of the Christian message is grace. Undeserved favor. This is God's work, not your work. And that's why it works. The message of the cross <laughs> Who would make this up if you could, and who could make it up if they would? Identification, subversion, finally now, this afternoon, fulfillment. Verses 23 and 25. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The irony of the situation at Corinth is that the very thing that the Jews demand and the very thing that the Greeks seek for is located in the very thing that these very different people groups both commonly reject Christ crucified. Why do some Jews and some Greeks and some Australians today reject Christ crucified? Why are these pews not flooded and filled with people? Because the message of the cross is confronting. Not simply in the depiction of a death, nor even in depiction of a particularly gruesome death by crucifixion. The message of the cross is confronting for what it signals to the world. You see, the difference between a person who is repelled by Christ crucified and who is compelled by Christ crucified is that it takes a certain humility to come to the cross with everything that you hold dear and near in life and be willing to lay those things down, trusting that he knows what's best for you. And on the cross, we find not just the demand on us that we should be willing to lay it down, we find the demonstration of one who actually did that willingly on his own accord. Jesus embodies what he is calling us to believe. In trusting his very life itself in the hands of God. Did it feel good for him? It's a crucifixion. (laughs) No. But like I said earlier, without a death, there would be no resurrection, no hope of a fulfillment of any sort. And this is ultimately why the cross is so confronting, because it brings transformation to people's lives. You know, just as Jesus' death on the cross embodies that ultimate laying down of one's life for God, so the resurrection embodies that ultimate raising up of one's life for God. And inasmuch as your life consists of the things that you value and that you desire and that you expect and that you long for and yearn for and pray for, so God redeems those very things in and through your life. This is subversive fulfillment. We empty out all of who we are, even the very best parts and the very worst parts, all of it, at the foot of the cross, and we trust God when he fills us back up with them. We get a really, really, really cool picture of this in C.S. Lewis, uh, The Great Divorce. It's worth me pointing out to you really quickly now. The story follows, if you're familiar with it, it follows this story of a narrator who finds himself in a shadowy realm between heaven and hell. Along the way on this journey, he meets various souls who have the opportunity to lead him through this realm and ascend to heaven eventually, but many are just frankly unwilling to do so because they are attached to certain things in their lives. One of the souls uh, the narrator meets is a ghost, and he has this red lizard wrapped around his neck. It's kind of flicking its tail and whispering things into his ear and controlling his every limp step along the way. This lizard represents the man's sinful desires and passions, and he's just unable to let go of the lizard. All of the things he loves and desires that are unconsciously strangling him and giving him a limp as he wanders aimlessly between the living and the dead. The ghost becomes increasingly agitated by this lizard when a flaming angel comes up and offers to silence the red lizard once and for all. But the ghost is terrified thinking, you know, yeah, this lizard does bother me, but I, I, yeah, I cannot live without this thing. It's the thing that's telling me which way to walk, what to do, what to say, what to think, what to feel. After some back and forth, the angel says to this ghost, I can, I can take their care of this for you, but I cannot do it unless you are willing. So eventually this ghost relents and agrees to let the angel help. Lewis describes what happens next as, quote, a scream of agony such as I've never heard on earth, end quote. As the angel closes its grip on this reptile, it starts twisting, writhing, flicking its tail, and spitting. Why are you hurting me? says the ghost. I never said it wouldn't hurt, says the angel. I just promised it would not kill you. And then Lewis writes this remarkable statement. Of transformation. For a moment, I could make out nothing distinctly. Then I saw, unmistakably solid but growing every moment, the upper arm and the shoulder of a man. Then brighter still and stronger the legs and the hands, the neck and the golden head materialized while I watched. And if my attention had not wavered, I should have seen the actual completion of a man. What distracted me was the fact that at the same time, Something seemed to be happening to this lizard. At first I thought the operation had failed, so far from dying, this creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled. But as it grew, it changed. Its hinder parts grew rounder. The tail, still flickering, became a tail of hair. Suddenly I started rubbing my eyes and staring back. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I had ever seen. Silvery white, but with a mane and a tail of gold. It was smooth and shining, rippled with swells of flesh and muscle, whiny and stamping with its hooves. Each stamp made the land shake and the trees dindle. You see what Lewis is describing here. Not only the transformation of this ghost into a man, limb by limb, but the transformation of even that red reptile into a stallion. This is what the message of the cross does. You cannot have an encounter with the cross and remain unchanged. It, it's a cruciformation. Uh, how's that for a made up word? It's a cross shaped transformation in that we die to self and we rise again in Christ. We are emptied out and we are filled again into something more glorious than we could ever have dreamed. This is subversive fulfillment. The message of the cross identifies our idols subverts our self-sufficiency and fulfills our deepest desires why did jesus die on a cross well he didn't have to he chose to in this is love it was not we that loved god but he that loved us and sent his son as the atonement for our sins why did jesus die on a cross because sin the making of idols out of what we value and desire apart from god the red lizards of our lives ensnare us and keep us from him who is life. And anything apart from him who is life is death. So Jesus came and met us in our humanity so that he could then die and deal with this problem of death once and for all and walk us through the other side in resurrected life. Why did Jesus die on a cross? Because it is only the message of the cross by which people are led to put their trust not in any human device, but what God has done in Christ No culture lays claim to this message, nor person. This is what the Easter story is all about. God's long-laid plans of love. Rather than choosing to hold us accountable for making idols out of things which lead to our own death, God substitutes himself in the person of Jesus, taking upon himself all of our wrongs and putting them to death. That's Good Friday. That's darkness. That's the sound of silence that's not the end of the story. Then comes Resurrection Sunday, today, and with the dawn of new light, the coming of new life. This is the ultimate transformation, death to life. Surely dead people stay dead, we say. Well, guess what? So did they back then. Look at the Gospels. This was a weird situation, right? This is why people started to talk about it. This is why eventually news traveled. This is why eventually it took over the mighty Roman Empire and remains today the largest and growing religion in the world, by the way. The Jews wanted a powerful sign. Here it is in the resurrection of Jesus. The Greeks wanted wisdom. Here it is in the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus breathes life into the weary lungs of a dying world. To this very day, this is why Easter is a time to celebrate, because Jesus makes gardens out of grave beds with the seeds of new life planted in the historical reality that he lives, and the hope that now flowers in the lives of people like you and I that because he lives, we too may live sounds too good to be true, right? Just another religious myth people get around and worship and talk about at least twice a year. But what if this was the one myth that was actual history? Identification, subversion, fulfillment. Every single person in this room carries a cross in life. And my question for you today is whether or not yours awaits a resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, only you could be so foolish to be so wise. (laughs) We thank you for the cross, for our death, which you died and your life in which we now hide. Jesus, you won through weakness. You loved through loss. You saved through sacrifice. He triumphed through trial. And now we live through death, your death. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to that cross I cling. Naked, we all come to you for dress. Helpless, we look to you for grace. Foul, I fly to the fountain, and you wash us lest we die. Wash us today, Father, we pray. Again and again and again, may I always pray that prayer, no matter how much I know you. And especially for anyone here who does not. I don't know the heads and the hearts of people here, even my dearest friends and family. I'm not inside people to know, but you know. You know their names, you know their stories, you know the memories in their minds. You know what triggers certain behaviours and responses and emotions and thoughts and feelings. You know their desires. You know what it is that if they had lost it, they would feel lost. You know what it is they're expecting tomorrow and this week and for the years to come. You know what motivates them to move. I ask, Lord, with you, knowing all of this, would work now in this very moment in the lives of people under the sound of this voice, speak. And as you do, Lord, may we loosen our grip on whatever it is that we're holding on to, even that objection that might be coming up now. And rush in right now and fill the willing heart with your love, your forgiveness, your life with a sense of compelling conviction that you, oh God, really became a historical human being. We know it from the books. We know it from personal testimony. You really died. You really rose to life again. And this story continues on throughout the ages, calling people, even this very day, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, friends of God himself. Lord, the longer I live in this life, the more I see that you just make sense in a society where there is so much nonsense. You are good when there is so much evil. You are light in a world that is For the most part quite dark you are love overcoming hate and yet not to the exclusion of justice you are a song of hope amid murmurs of despair and so i pray now lord that all of us here would incline our ears that we might hear your song and sing along amen thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of calvary chapel newcastle If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.